This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So my topic is the Catholic intellectual renaissance of the 20th century, and today really all I can do is introduce you to it and, and point you towards people to study and things to look at to get to know this better. But I want to describe the movement in general. You know, where do you begin with some kind of great intellectual movement? I'm going to begin with John Henry Newman. He was a convert to Catholicism within the so-called Oxford movement in the middle 1800s, and really in Victorian era. And, um, you know, very, very high profile person who was maybe the most admired scholar in Oxford at his time. I think it was 1845 he converted. He wrote some great works like Development of Christian Doctrine, um, Grammar of Ascent. He wrote a poem in 1865 called The Dream of Garantius. Garantius is Latin, means old man. And if the poem is about somebody who on his deathbed has last rites said to him, and he goes through death in the poem, and his soul is liberated from his body, meets his guardian angel, guardian angel leads him up to the celestial heights. They have to bypass some devils who try to get at him on the way and go up to the throne of God, trembles in fear before the throne of God. He's judged uh, worthy of heaven, but he has to go through purification. So the poem ends with uh, his guardian angel uh, gently placing his, uh, his soul in a kind of, it's conceived as like a bath of purification at the very end. Now, the poem is extraordinarily beautiful. I hope you have a chance to read it in the near future. But in 1900, it was used as the text for a kind of oratorio by Edward Elgar. He, you may know him for his Pomp and Circumstance March, which is really very famous. Also Land of Hope and Glory, which is a really famous song in him. So I, w I wanted to begin, um, although the, the 20th century begins in 1901, 19, 1900, right? But this is close enough that we can count it. So this is the very beginning. I'm going to just play you some snippets from Dream of Gorontius. If, if we had a projector and so on, I'd show you some parts of movies and so on. It's Google Calendar time. I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, here, here it opens. Listen to this this great theme. How many of you here listen to classical music and are not going to be put off by it? Okay, so most of you. Okay.
So it conveys pretty well the somberness of somebody on their deathbed, right? And he prays. And I'm going through this because this is a huge work now, right? This is played at major festivals around the world by great orchestras. And um, um, so, you know, this is, this is how you have a convert writing a poem, which is taken up to be the basis for an oratorio. And now it's, you know, people meditate on this during Jesu Maria, I'm near to death. And now the priest sends forth his soul. There's in the last rites, there's a part where the priest says, go forth, Christian soul. I want to pray that, play that for you. It's the priest. Okay, so there's a lot to play here. So I'm going to give you a little excerpt of that. We'll go ahead to the... So the first part is last rites on his deathbed. The second part is he's died. And I, I just want to just give you the flavor of the second part because the, the peace and the beauty of this is really extraordinary that Elgar has, evokes. And it really does... Like if you... The transition from his deathbed scene and its tumult and so on to the peace and optimism of this second part. It's very similar to uh, the actual Catholic intellectual renaissance, which comes out of the tumult of the French Revolution and the, and the revolutions in, in the, on the continent in the 1800s, and, and even the First World War, although it begins before the First World War. So this is how it starts.
I guess if I could turn those off. So the last thing from this, and it's, and nothing is going to happen very quickly in this oratorio. So if you're like used to rock and roll and jazz, it's not going to grab you in quite the same way. But there's some. Um, so just before the soul reaches the throne of God, it goes past the fifth choir of angelicals, and the text for Newman's uh, poem here, "Praise to the Holy Son Heights," is used as a hymn text in church, and you may have encountered it before, but this is the original, uh, the, that's the original words, but the first musical setting was actually Elgar's uh, Dream of Garantius. So let's, uh, let me see if I can get it correctly.
Okay. So that's that. Um, well, that's my introduction to this. 1900, Newman's conversion, Elgar taking this up, um, and kind of a casebook study of how one might influence the culture. And this, this really great work, which belongs now to the mainstream classical um, repertoire. So I see that I sent the wrong document to Michael Brown by mistake. I did it for my iPhone. I wanted to send a syllabus, of course, that I taught with Michael Novak once on this, and I sent instead uh, earlier outline of notes for this talk. So anyway, you have, have some notes uh, in front of you. And um, <clears throat> all right, so what is this Catholic intellectual renaissance of the 20th century, and why is it important? Well, um, a remarkable flowering, as I say in the handout, of contributions to art, music, literature, and philosophy. In the early to mid, or maybe we even go, you could go as late as 1980, maybe 20th century, originating in France, uh, this, the, the main pulse of it, Newman, of course, is England and earlier, spreading to Germany, coming back to England through France and the United States. Now, when I taught this course, I taught it with Michael Novak, the great uh, Catholic political philosopher. And he liked to think of this movement as starting with Saint-Thérèse of Lisieux. She is turn of the century. But her story of a soul, she died when she was, what, 23 years old? Um, 19 something, just over 1900, she died. Can't remember what exactly the year was. But um, her story of the soul, when it was published, became um, a sensation throughout the world. And in Catholic churches, the statue of Saint Thérèse of Lisieux and her habit carrying flowers and maybe a cross, right? This almost every church in Europe had a, a, a shrine to her. Uh, and it's hard for us to imagine, go back in time and think about how uh, appealing she was as a saint. Right, so I, and Novak would say, well, you really can't think of this movement without thinking about her spirituality. And I've been reading her, L'Histoire du Nom, um, recently and, um, you know, reading it for the first time in French. And it's just her language is just ex extraordinary. Um, there's a kind of exquisite childlike beauty to her soul. Um, she taught a spirituality of Christianity, of the practice of the spiritual childhood, which, like childhood, is new. Like childhood is a time of, of growth and birth, right? So um, it's that, and we'll see, it's that return to the, to the intimate, to the small in the eyes of the world, to the beautiful in the presence of God, little flower, which is kind of at the heart of this whole movement. Now, where are some of the causes? Well, in the end, what causes a renaissance? What caused the Italian renaissance? What caused the great golden period of, uh, of Athens, for example? Um, we don't really know. It's a mystery, right? But um, here are things I might point to, uh, as on the handout, the encyclical of Leo XIII, Patris, which contributed to the revival of neo-scholastic philosophy. I think every good renaissance needs a strong philosophical and doctrinal skeleton, so to speak, or foundation. And that was provided by neo-scholasticism. Um, so um, in particular in France, Etienne Gilson and Jacques Maritain, uh, in a very appealing and, and uh, persuasive way, reviving Thomistic philosophy. 
This became a worldwide movement. In fact, the the journal of the American Catholic Philosophical Association was actually called neo-scholasticism for most of its life. Um, second point, as I said, the, the effects of the simple spirituality of Saint-Thérèse of Lisieux. Third is a kind of weariness, weariness of the old order, and then into the 20th century coiling in horror at the nihilistic destruction of the First World War. So the, the First World War and its effect on European culture can't be uh, overstated. And then in the Catholic world, this injection of new life through conversions. I mentioned Newman, Gilson was a convert, Maritain was a convert, Paul Claudel, the scientist, was a convert. So many, many conversions in England, Chesterton we know about, right? Hiller, Belloc. Um, so these conversions. It's really a movement of converts. And something which played its a role also was the new theology of um, like Henri de Lubac, for example, Yves Congar, um, and liturgical reform. I don't know where students in this room stand on the new order, the Novus Ordo versus the old right. But... Um, the old right was uh, quite routinized in the middle of the 20th century. And the movement towards liturgical reform was extremely important. It kind of was with like form and substance. It went along with a re reform within the church, retor return to the sources, very important, and finding its full flower in the First Vatican Council. So I would advise you to be a, go a little bit slowly if you're disposed to write off the Novus Ordo, it is deeply bound up with what we're talking about this evening, um, this liturgical reform. And um, abuse doesn't take away use. The fact that the Novus Ordo has been so uh, irreverently uh, used doesn't mean that it doesn't have. I mean, John, Saint, great Saint Pope John Paul II um, never, never celebrated Mass in anything except the Novus Ordo, but I would... Uh, you know, I challenge you to look at some of those videos and say, well, there's anything lacking in mystery, beauty, or reverence in any of his masses. I don't think so. Okay. I want to say this, that unless you step back and look at it as a whole, you're going to miss it. Because the standard lines of intellectual history and the development of disciplines taught in college classes will actually not capture the thing. You have to, you, you get like little points, but you never assemble those points together into a picture. I mean, to some extent, there are two, I think there are two reasons for that. First of all, the figures in the movement are not the absolute most major figures in the disciplines. So the disciplines have different criteria. So if I'm thinking about, say, the discipline of philosophy in the 20th century, I might think about Husserl or Heidegger in the continent. I might think about Bertrand Russell um, in Wittgenstein uh, in, in England. But um, I wouldn't think about um, Gabriel Marcel, for example, or um, uh, Gilson, certainly, um, his, or, or Jacques Maritain. They're kind of secondary figures within the philosophical tradition. But then when you begin to assemble them, when they're kind of like-minded figures in this intellectual renaissance, it looks very impressive. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that um, 
you know, by the way, being right now secondary within a discipline doesn't mean you're going to remain secondary for the rest of history. And we don't really know how, you know, where the jury is going to stand on Wittgenstein versus Jacques Maritain two, two centuries from now. But um, the other thing is that um, this Renaissance concerns what I would call civilization. I mean, something that is meant to be captured by the liberal arts, but we know which isn't at this university or most universities. It's something like the refined and cultured reception of science um, and technology and putting it into its proper place. Right? And it's a, that's a subtle matter. And so it's not a contribution to a scientific discipline. It's the development of a certain kind of subtlety of character and thought and refinement, which allows for the proper reception of science within the mind and heart of an educated person. And, and that requires something like, I want to say, like a university. It requires people from all kinds of different disciplines somehow working together for a common effect, common achievement. Um, that's what's going on in this Renaissance. Okay, so some of the... Um, it's importance and themes. You have this on your handout, which I didn't mean to give out to you, but you do have it. So, all right. So you have the French Revolution and the terror in France and a deliberate attempt to, on the part of some revolutionaries, to wipe out the church and to establish a secular, laic culture in France. And, um, you know, roughly... A hundred years after that, you have this remarkable outburst of Catholic, Catholic sensibility. Right? So how does that happen? Right? And it's a kind of proof of the vitality of the Christian faith. I was looking at Kenneth Baker's documentaries on, on civilization, using it for my children homeschooling. And he points out how Roman civilization had basically been... Um, preserved solely on a few rocks, a few rocks out off the coast of Ireland right, for a couple of centuries. And then it came back again. It was like a seed. It was dormant and it burst forth again. But this is, and you know, keep converted on his deathbed to Catholicism. We might even call him a part of this movement himself. But um, he claimed that the church was the custodian of civilization. We see that happening also in this movement. Okay, so that's the first thing. It really does teach us about the kind of source of vitality that remains within the Catholic Church, even when we may think that it's been destroyed. Right. The second is a kind of claiming of youthfulness and optimism as distinctive traits of Christian culture. Now, I think what we see in this Catholic intellectual renaissance is a kind of replacement of a certain ideal of a Catholic mind. Right Before it, I might have said it was represented by St. Thomas Aquinas. And don't get me wrong, I love St. Thomas Aquinas. I read him almost every day. I'm a member of the Pontifical Academy of St. Thomas Aquinas. You, I teach him in, in his, my classes when I want to teach anything related to virtue and moral philosophy. I just use Aquinas. I mean, you're not going to find a stronger proponent of Aquinas or a greater lover of Aquinas than myself, even among all those great reverend Dominican fathers. Nonetheless, I don't think, that although Aquinas is a necessary foundation, I think, to contemporary Catholic intellectual 
I don't think that Aquinas represents, so to speak, the best type of a vibrant Catholic mind best able to contribute to evangelization and conversion in the contemporary world. There's, how do I want to put it? There's something, her, we've gone through horrors. Like we have a Jewish older brother here, just think of the concentration camps, right? Um, they didn't exist before 1200 when Aquinas wrote. We've gone through the horrors of the concentration camps, the great wars, dehumanizations. Um, we have various types of subjection of the human person. And um, so there needs to be a certain kind of grittiness, a certain kind of um, savvy, a certain kind of familiarity with ugliness and evil and suffering, I think, which maybe uh, wasn't the best uh, in an earlier age, but I think it is, so to speak, necessary equipment today. Not such as to get you depressed and turn you into a nihilist, um, like a modern artist who just paints ugly things, but it can't shock you. I mean, that has to be so you have to expect you, right? It shouldn't surprise you in your fellow man if you see the effects of this, right? So somebody was mentioning Walker Percy, um, another one of the great Southern novelists who's part of this movement is Flannery O'Connor, of course. And Flannery O'Connor was extremely interested in the grotesque. She thought that the grotesque was incarnational, that it reflected um, something deep about the human condition. And that we shouldn't pretend that Christianity is a matter of just feeling nice and being nice. After all, the cross is grotesque. It's an instrument of punishment and torture. So I, th I think that that sensibility is a part of this. And this is actually under number four, right? Um, there, this, um, that there's some kind of, somehow the ordinary, even the grotesque, is shot through with a certain divinity, Right, this is really important. Another theme um, interwoven with it is personalism, discovery of the significance of the subjectivity of the human person in particular, and relationality. So a great work, which is not part of this, but it's definitely harmonious with it, is Martin Buber's Ich Du, I Thou, right? So this is, you know, there's uh, Ich It, there's the I It relationship, which we have to things but we have the I-thou relationship with one another, and that creates a different order, is a different order of existence and reality and thought. Right, so this is very important um, insight of this movement. Um, um, there's also um, what I want to say, this kind of top, bottom-up formulation of Catholic insight, right? No, and it's, it's kind of, you have to have a certain kind of tolerance even for error in this, in this way of doing things, so or thinking about it. So Graham Greene, for example, is somebody who converted, wrote a whole bunch of novels and probably fell away right near the end of his life, right? But a lot of his novels aren't particularly edifying. Um, they're mixed, right? They'll teach you a lot of good things, but they'll also have things that you don't necessarily want to put this in the hands of like a 13-year-old to read a Graham Greene novel. You have to kind of select out of it. Walker Percy has novels that are just as problematic as Grand Green, but he's he's doing it deliberately. You know, he understands when he's presenting something that's misguided, 
but he's using it to represent something that he wants you to, he wants to shock you or to get you see, to see the truth better. But we tolerate Graham Greene, saying, well, he's part of this. He's, we're not going to put him on a list of forbidden books because there are a lot of errors in the books of Graham Greene, which there are. I say under number seven that we find in this movement a kind of setting down of precursors to attack or contextualize positivism within the various academic disciplines and prepare a way for a still unrealized revitalization of specifically Catholic universities. You have John Paul II writing Ex Corde Ecclesi at the end of the 20th century on the revitalization, the restoration of Catholic universities. But how? How's that supposed to take place, right? It's not a matter of St. Thomas Aquinas' theology being at the center of the university the way it would have been in a medieval university. It has to be something like a coalescence of humanistic disciplines that are animated in a different way. Of course, again, we're never going to downplay the role of St. Thomas Aquinas. So I think that the, you, know, you understand something by its telos, and I would say the telos of this movement is a realization of a community life, which is intellectual, which is the sort of thing that needs to be captured in a university, but hasn't been so far. Not Thomas Aquinas College, which is more Thomistic, of course, it's Thomas Aquinas College. Not John Paul II in California, which I think wanted to do this sort of thing, right? Focusing on the media and film and so on. Not Christendom College, not anything that's classical. If you're purely classical, you won't be doing this. All right, so what are some traits of this movement? Right. Um, it's strongly incarnational. Now, what I mean here, I already mentioned this idea that it's we're not concerned with safety. Right. So there's a certain kind of Catholic mind. I'm just, just give you things that are pure and they're completely reliable and so on. And that's fine. But this this movement, you kind of take risks. Right. And what you write about and what you say and what you study. And, and as I said, you're tolerant of people who go off the mark because it's worth it. It's worth taking the risk, right? Um, but in saying that it's incarnational, this is what I mean. I mean that it means, it means to convey important truths in, in an enfleshed way, more like a narrative, more like a story, more like an existential reality, and less like a doctrine right, or a philosophical argument. It's, it's going to put before you a short story of Flannery O'Connor rather than a philosophical discourse. Right? It's going to say that the short story tells you something about the world and about the gospel, which is just as important as something that you could formulate in a series of philosophical propositions. Pity and pathos, it's marked by a deep attempt to recover that something like human nature and to figure it out and to feel great um, kind of sympathy for the human condition, just like we believe our Savior uh, looked with pity upon the human race in its weakness and sin and didn't reject us for that reason, but sought us out. Right. So this is a kind of cultural movement which sees the weakness and the error and the folly and the ugliness of human nature, but doesn't flee on account of that, but wants to go towards it. Right. Um, and try to provide some kind of remedy. And I finally want to mention integrity. Can it's a mark of these thinkers that there's this tremendous unity be between life and thought. They're not mere intellectuals. Like the Maritans, Jacques and Raisa, were so devoted to the truth that they were seeking that they 
uh, entered consensually into a Josephite marriage, I think it's called. So a marriage without sexual relations so they could be pure in the pursuit of truth. Now, uh, that's not something I would do or I have done. Uh, I've got uh, several children, some of you know. But um, nonetheless, there's a tremendous integrity, their unity between thought and life. Um, Charles Peggy um, died in the first battle of the Marne. He wrote a poem about a certain kind of heroism of laying down one's life um, for one's ideal, and he actually gave up his life fighting the Germans in the first battle of the Marne, World War I. Um, and no one was surprised by that. It was kind of completely consistent. Of course, the existentialists try to get at this in their own way during the Second World War. Okay, some main works of the movement. I'm going to have to send this to you because I sent the wrong thing to print out to Michael Brown. But um, uh, they're films. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock is on the poster, which, I, um, which was wonderfully produced for this talk. On his deathbed, he converted to Catholicism, but there are Catholic themes in his movies. Some of you probably know, I confess. Right? Um, and um, The Wrong Man is uh, you know, deeply Catholic in its themes. There's a wonderful movie of Bernanos' novel, a Diary of a Country Priest. You know, of course, there's the great high period of kind of Catholic portrayal in Hollywood in the 1950s, which is kind of the result of this movement as well. So I want to, um, I feel a bit of a, a loss here because I don't have the syllabus and that's my mistake, but I also have a list of everybody in different countries who would be counted as part of this movement to get to know and there are links in the syllabus for various pieces that you could look at. But I, I, what I, why don't I play another piece of music for you? Um, this is from the Dialogue de Carmelite. Now this itself is based on a book by Gertrude von de Fort, I think is her name, song at the scaffold, and it's about a true story about a convent of nuns during the French Revolution. The convent is closed, the nuns are arrested, and they're eventually marched to the guillotine. At one point, when the terror is approaching, the sister, their um, mother, Abbess, leads them together in a kind of taking a vow to experience martyr martyrdom if necessary um, because of fidelity to the Lord and to their way of life. There's one of the nuns, a young nun, who joined them, who refuses to take this oath. She runs away at this point. Her motives for taking on the habit and entering religious life are always a bit in doubt from the beginning of the opera and the story. Uh, she has an overbearing father. She is trying to escape his influence. Is she driven by fear? She seems to have slightly morbid fears about salvation and whether she's threatened with hell or not. But, so she runs away. She doesn't take the vow. The opera closes with the sisters being marched up to the guillotine. And um, they're singing the Salve Regina. And one by one, they're... they're they're dying, and you can, you know, Poulenc brings in the sound of the falling blade of the guillotine during this great final scene. And just when they've all, just about all been killed and the song has died out, um, this sister, who was so frightened and was watching on, some gets the courage to come forward, and she joins in with the Salve Regina, and then uh, is the last one to be executed. So if we can hear it. 
don't know what's going on next door. I'd like to play you um, this final scene from the dialogue that Cameron leads. Poulenc. I forgot to say, this is performed at the Met on a regular basis, and the University of Maryland performed it a few years ago. Did anyone see the posters for that or attend it? So this is another example of great work of Catholic art, which deeply informed by spirituality and prayer, and which is part of, so to speak, the common cultural inheritance now of the human race.
This is where the young man comes in. This must be her because she's still singing. She's the last one to get killed. Well, that's the final scene. Okay, so you may wonder where should I go if I want to start reading about this um, Catholic intellectual renaissance. Robert Royal has written a book about the movement. I can't remember the title of the book, but you can find it on Amazon. Evelyn Waugh, Brideshead Revisited, is a novel that I would recommend right away. He's part of this movement. I might recommend something by Jacques Maritain. Um, um, Three Reformers is what I would pick. It's my first book of Jacques Maritain. It's on Descartes, Rousseau, and Luther. Um, you might pick Henri de Lubac, the drama of atheistic humanism for a sense of the new theology. Um, the English Dominicans are very important. Um, Vincent McNabb and Gerald Van, uh, middle part of the 20th century. I would recommend The Divine Pity by Gerald Van, V-A-N-N. In the United States, um, Fulton Sheen is definitely part of this. Walker Percy, we'd already mentioned, and Flannery O'Connor. So why don't I just stop there and um, ask me questions, and we'll see what I can come up with in relationship to your questions. Ronald Knox is part of this um, movement, The Belief of Catholics, is the first book of his that I would recommend. Charles Peggy, we mentioned his poetry. Um, you know, it's in French. I mean, do you want to read French poetry in English? But the translations are okay. Uh, maybe the best collection of his work is God Speaks. I think that was published in 1965. Poems were written much earlier than that. Romano Guardini, very important name. It's part of this movement. The End of the Modern World is maybe his most famous book, but I think his Letters from Lake Como are even more valuable. Romano Guardini, Letters from Lake Como. His criticism of technology has been very influential for Pope Francis, and it's important in Laudato State. Guardini is referred to quite a lot there. The, the films that we've watched in this, move, in this uh, class were Green Light, Frank Borzaga, director. He was uh, Catholic. Um, Going My Way, Leo McCary. Uh, John Ford, The Fugitive, 
The Fugitive is very similar to Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory. It has a similar plot. Um, it's about the kind of Mexican whiskey priest. Um, Diary of a Country Priest, Robert Bresson is the director, and The Wrong Man by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, Armentore Fanfari is an Italian political philosopher who's part of this movement. He wrote a book called Catholicism, Capitalism, and Protestantism, which was published in 1935. It's really unknown, but quite significant. And then we did include a little bit of science. Pierre Duhem, does, does that mean the name? D-U-H-E-M. He's um, one of the great philosophers of science from the 20th century. And um, then Lemaitre, Georges Lemaitre, he was a priest at the Foundations of Cosmology, um, colleague of Einstein. I believe you know the story about Einstein when he formulated general relativity, realized that there was not, nothing to keep the universe from expanding or contracting. So he added the cosmological constant, which would keep the universe stable. And he later called that his worst mistake, because of course it was wrong. But Lemaitre criticized him for that, and he thought that the natural conclusion was an expanding universe. So the Catholic priest was correct on that. And finally, there's a great um, priest, Stanley Yaki, J-A-K-I, um, who, well, he flourished in the middle part of the 20th century. He could be counted as part of this movement as well. But he wrote a book called The Savior of Science and how modern science was born out of a Christian sensibility. So it's... Um, this, many great scientists in the late 19th and 20th century were Catholic, but Yaki's account kind of ties them all together. So these are some of the names that are on here, and I'll just also, we have a list of people from various countries. France, Pierre Duhem, Léon Blois, Charles Peggy, Paul Claudel, Georges Bernanos, François Mauriac, Robert Brasson, Alexis Carrel, Gabriel Marcel, Henri de Lubac, Etienne Gilson, Jacques Maritain, Jérôme Lejeune, Maurice Derenflay, Derenflay is a great composer. The United States, Fulton Sheen, John Courtney Murray, Thomas Merton, Leo McCary, John Ford, Alfred Hitchcock, Frank Capra, Frank Borzaga, William F. Buckley, Claire Booth Luce, Avery Cardinal Dulles, Stanley Yockey, Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, Russell Kirk, Michael Novak, Ralph McInerney, Richard John Newhouse, Antonin Scalia, Robert Bork, I think they should be added on to the end of that movement. In Great Britain, Jared Manley Hopkins, Robert Hugh Benson, Father Vincent McNabb, mentioned already, G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Bella, Sir Arnold Lund, Monsignor Knox, Evelyn Waugh, Graham Greene, Tolkien, Christopher Dawson, Roy Campbell, Malcolm Muggeridge, Sir John Eccles, E.F. Schumacher of Smallest Beautiful Fame and Elizabeth Anscombe, let's not forget her, her husband, Peter Geach. Germany, Gertrude von Lefort, Karl Adam, Edith Stein, Max Scheler, we had a Catholic period, Elizabeth Langeser, Erich Maria Remarque, Karl Stern, Romano Guardini, Joseph Pieper, Hans Ur von Balthasar, Joseph Ratzinger, and William, Wilhelm Rupke. In Spain, Jose Maria Piranella, Miguel de Unamuno, Jose Maria Escriva. In Italy, Amentore Fanfari, Don Luigi Sturzo, Alcide de Gaspari, Giuseppe Ungaretti, and I think we have to include the founder of CL, um, 
Jasani. Norway, Sigrid Unset. Poland, Henrik Sinkovich and Karol Wojtyla. In the Czech Republic, Jan Zavradnicek and Jan Danish. Okay, so it's a pretty impressive list, right? I'm glad I found this list because I didn't try to memorize it. Um, you get a sense of the dimensions of this movement. So please, uh, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of the fact is really overwhelming when you read those names together like that. And so I think you should all ask, well, how much can I contribute to our own Renaissance, Catholic intellectual Renaissance in the 21st century? May I begin here? <laughs> <laughs> so questions? Yes. Thank you. Um, yeah, I'm wondering about those whose work um, has been, you know, very excellent, very beautiful, toying with religious themes, um, perhaps even explicitly Catholic content, but the authors are not particularly Catholic or Orthodox. And how do you group them in the mix? And so can you give me some yeah, ideas? Yeah, I'm of like uh, Pasolini or like Terrence Malick, um, Graham Greene, who you mentioned, like Tabner, um, Martin Scorsese, Marilyn Robinson. Um, like I, you know, I love all of their work. Mm. Um, and I think of it, I think tangentially, or perhaps within this sphere. Um, but none of them are, you know, particularly Catholic, yeah, um, or, or have a constrained relationship to the church. Yeah, well, Graham Greene had a, he was, I think he was Orthodox Catholic for a short period of time. Well, it's the nature of the Catholic Church. I mean, it's, you know, the body of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. That's what Vatican II teaches. And it used that imagery because it has this idea of like substance and accidents. And so being subsists in substance but also has accidents that are attached to it. So I think that a movement like this is going to throw off all kinds of refractions and extensions, where there'd be also distortions as well and things that aren't quite right. You might want to say, how do you deal with that? Do you receive it and you welcome it? I mean, if, if uh, you know, Madonna wears a cross, does that mean that she's giving some kind of testimony to the truth of the Catholic faith? Now, see, she certainly realized that it has some kind of power which ordinary jewelry doesn't have, right? So um, these are mixed, and these have to be used with a certain degree of care. And, but very often, like Martin Scorsese, Last Temptation of Christ, I think, is, seems almost designed to people. What's what about? Oh, sorry, I'm shaking my head. And how bad it is? Yeah, seems designed I mean, to lead the, people the, the astray. Like, yeah, he's... Yeah. He did Last Temptation of Christ, right? Is that what he directed? I believe yeah, so. I mean, it's just such a start, like, dear Lord. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, we have to, ourselves, be well-grounded in sound doctrine and truthful spirituality and then take what should be taken from these sources. And we have to be, as our Lord said, be good bankers. We have to, we have to grab, you know, take the good currency and put aside the false currency. Yes. Um, so, I mean, with Catholic intellectualism, the thing is like, you know, Catholics are in so many like prominent universities over the centuries. Like, you have so many great Catholic like intellectuals of like each century. 
would you say that you would consider like this is sort of like the highlight of Catholic people in the 20th century, or do you think there actually is like a genuine renaissance that we have lacking in the 1700s and 1800s, and we have this explosion of extremely strong Catholic philosophy that separates itself from the previous, like, you know, relatively recent centuries? Well, that's a great question. So I, I do think that what's, okay, so you're saying, is this just one of many renaissances or one, or is it, or, or is it noteworthy because there was discontinuity which came before, and so we, we take it to be a segmented, separable phenomenon, whereas mm -hmm. what, what happened is an attack of secularism maybe in the late 1800s, and this, this, you know, this survived or something. No, because here I think that right throughout history, the main Catholic intellectuals have been clerics or um, you know, monks, priests, even members of universities tended to be quasi-clerical. I mean, until 1900, you had to resign your fellowship at Oxford Cambridge if you got married. So it was very closely connected to a certain mode of life. Um, whereas this movement is marked for being a lay movement, I think. And it's also, um, you know, not given any direction, except, you know, the exception is the attorney Patris of Leo XIII. And in response to that, certain clerics like uh, Cardinal Mercier in Belgium uh, started institutes to study Thomistic philosophy. And there's some sense in which, but, you know, then if you look at the history of Gilson and Maritain, they're actually studying with Bergson. And it, there's no direct connection between eternity Patris and their conversion and becoming deeply interested in Thomas Aquinas. It looks as though it's a separate thing. It looks like it's it's its own inspiration. So it's this kind of this again, this kind of bottom up character to it, and that it's among the laity. This does seem to be distinctive of it. In the back first, and then so yeah. Yes. Right, so that's a great question. Well, it's similar to Michael's question because you get converts because there's been some kind of persecution or secularization, right? So if you had a completely Catholic Europe, you're not going to have a lot of converts, right? If you have a Protestantized Europe and a Europe affected by atheism and disaffection with Christianity, then you'll have converts, right? So not all of them were lay persons. John Henry Newman was a convert who from, was not a lay person. He was ordained a Catholic priest. Soon after he converted, he had been an Anglican priest. But Newman is interesting because he was actually rejected by the theological establishment in Rome. He wasn't scholastic. He wasn't uh, in his manner or method or findings. A lot of his things seemed to savor of a certain kind of probabilism as a forerunner of modernism. Well, Newman is so easily taken up today and used by people who are misguided and modernistic in their philosophy. So it's, it's easy to see that in Newman, even though it wasn't actually in Newman. But Newman's a great example. I mean, his manner of preaching is so English. It's so, um, right, it, it, it takes, Newman wrote a sermon where he talks about what was lost to the church 
by England's departure from the Catholic Church under the Henry VIII, and that a kind of reconversion of England would bring back an English sensibility, which would benefit Catholicism in ways X, Y, and Z. He says, this. well, he was one of the first persons to do that, really. But, you, but you're right, it was resisted at the start, and, um, uh, you know, not really welcomed, I think. And I'm not even sure it's welcome today, in a certain sense. I mean, do you, you know, right? I mean, popes and bishops do their own thing, right? Sigrid <laughs> <laughs> Insight didn't need a bishop to tell her to write anything, and she also... I mean, even today, the seeking of the imprimatur and the nihil opstat is kind of obsolete. I mean, people aren't even going to the bishops for approval of their doctrinal positions in their books. Um, did, did I answer your question? Yeah. yeah, I guess it's like you kind of have to keep them separate to a point, because like the papacy and, and the clergy like, have to remain kind of stoic and you know, they can't really get into all the... I'm going to say this. You have a entirely different... Yeah. be worth in common thinking about this here, an entirely different frame of mind if you have somebody who had been, say, a fairly kind of flagrant atheist who becomes a Catholic. It's, it's like I am now in a kind of betraying the world. I'm now taking these gifts of the world, which I exalted in, and I'm bringing them captive to the church, right? So you have a kind of distinctive mentality. A distinctive mentality, like you've taken this captive and you're bringing it to our Lord. And you're also, in a certain sense, savvy. You kind of know it from the inside. Right? Certainly somebody who's, you know, cradle Catholic and you know, never lapses into mortal sin is wonderful. We can all kind of hope that, you know, we, we're, we could be like that or our children could be like that. But, the, you know, the... Augustine, right, wrote The City of God, essentially bringing pagan classicism to the church out of this kind of frame of mind. So you might say, in that sense, it's very Augustinian, this movement. Yes, Michael. Yeah, I have to cut the questions short. Um, okay. but, uh, thank you so much for giving that talk. I think uh, it was amazing.